1: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get
2: the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Five, four, three,
0: two, one. But who's counting, right?
2: His name is Major.
0: Oh! Ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the
3: nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
0: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. You know, this particular show is sprinkled with the stardust of destiny. What do I mean by that? Sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? What I mean by that is our guest, who I'll introduce in a second, and I've known each other many years, and he's just written a book that answers or seeks to answer one of the questions that this show has always been dedicated to. Why do people come to Washington, D.C.? What are their motives? What are their aspirations? What are they trying to accomplish? What are they going through as they try to work through those things? Now, my show doesn't get anywhere near to the terrain that my guest's book gets to, which is why I'm so glad he's here. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest, Ben Terrace of The Washington Post. Ben, it's great to see you. It's great to be here. His book called The Big Break, and you've got to wait for the subtitle. Listen closely. The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Now, before we talk to Ben, I just want everyone in my audience to know. Washington, D.C. is crawling with journalists. Every corner of the city has got journalists. Almost never does a journalist rise to the rank where their work has a name applied to it. Even rarer still, their full name applied to it. And there is something in Washington known widely as the Ben Terrace treatment. Profile subjects get the Ben Terrace treatment. It's a thing. People know about it. So, Ben, first of all, congratulations on that status. <laughs> Thank you. Second of all, tell my audience what the book is about and sure. what it tries to answer.
1: So it's called The Big Break, right? And the, the reason it's called The Big Break is because the country went through a big break. Donald Trump kind of broke our politics, the way we think about our country, the way Washington works. Um, But it's also about a bunch of people seeking a big break in this new Washington. So it's in the period of time after Donald Trump has been expelled from office, Mm -hmm. before he may return. And there's this new landscape in Washington, D.C. that all these kind of new creatures and old creatures trying to figure out a new way to exist uh, are trying to put something together, trying to either get famous or influential or elect somebody or pass legislation they believe in. It's just this, you know, this new territory. And these are kind of the pioneers in the frontier trying to figure out what this
0: new Washington is all about. Midway through the book, there's a sentence that says most people come to Washington as idealists. Do you believe that? Yeah, I do. Certainly. I mean, and our food is arrived. By the way, I didn't mention this. I keep forgetting to set the stage where we are. Unconventional okay. diner is where we are. And lunch has just arrived. So I thank you very much for nice. that. Chicken and waffles for me, of course. That's uh, fitting within my completely non-dietary diet, meaning there's no diet involved. There's just food. And lots of it. So please continue, Ben.
1: Uh, So idealists, yeah. I mean, look, if you really, really cared about being famous, like, why would you come here and not go to Hollywood? And if you really, really wanted to be rich, why would you come here and not go to New York? York? I mean, there's other places. Or Boston or Chicago or something like that. And and you can come here for both of those reasons. It's just not going to be the main reason to Mm -hmm. come here. And people forget that Washington is filled with thousands of people. Right. And most of those people are here to be part of something bigger than themselves. I do also think that there's people come to Washington and everyone always wonders, are they going to change the place or is this place going to change them? Right. And I do think a lot of idealists come ideal, idealists and leave cynics, but it's not the only story in the city by any means.
0: Right. And there's nothing uh, new in life or literature about people coming to any place with any set of motivations idealistically and being sort of worn down by the hard realities of life. And the great choice you have in that saga, lived or read, is what are your choices? Do you remain idealistic or do you become cynical and sort of turn bitter against either your life, the choices, or the system around you? Which kind of flows through the book. Yeah, I mean, this book is filled with people whose
1: main tension is often, are they idealistic? Are they becoming cynical? Were they always cynical and pretending to be idealistic? I mean, there's one character in this book whose ex-girlfriend I talked to who lived with him for five years or so, dated for seven years. And she said afterwards, like, I couldn't tell if his main motivating force was to be famous and influential or to do good in the world. Like, I never knew, even though I knew him better than anyone in the world.
0: And so this is what I'm trying to figure out with a lot of the people is, like, what are you doing here? And when I talked earlier, ladies and gentlemen, about the Ben Terrace treatment, what that means is Ben has a unique way of getting people in Washington who are closed and protective of their reputations or what they're doing to open up, open up in ways that he surprised even them, which is clearly true in this book. You talk to so many people who I think told you things they told no one else. And in certain respects, not even people they were living with or had long term relationships with. How do you do that?
1: I don't know. Sometimes. I mean, I think basically I I, I go into these stories giving people the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. I give them time and I treat them with respect. And even sometimes people I don't like or don't really respect, I treat them with the respect that I think they deserve as a subject, right? Which is to say there's a lot of people in this book who are never taken seriously, who assume that every journalist is out to get them. And I'm not out to get people. Sometimes when you read a story of mine, you'll look at the subject and be like, why did that person talk to Ben? Like, they are gotten. But it's not the goal. The goal is to try to figure out what motivates people and makes them tick and who they are and how they fit into the story that is Washington or the country. And so I think giving people the chance to speak and be open and giving them lots of time is a way to get to understand people so many journalists go in and they parachute in and they get a quick quote and they get the gotcha moment and they file it back to their editor and they're like this is my profile I'm I'm trying to let people breathe a little bit and sometimes it's more damaging for them but sometimes they come
0: across as three dimensional characters and uniquely you're afforded the opportunity of time to do that
1: Yes. So for my job... That's a luxury. It is. I mean, at the Washington Post, I work in the style section, which is the feature section of the Post, and it's as close to kind of magazine writing as you can get in a newspaper in a way, and I get a couple thousand words in a couple weeks, and that's more than most people. This book was another, like, next level, even for me. I spent two years on this book, which meant many, many months with people, seeing them again and again, seeing how their stories changed seeing how they realize that one thing they said they actually regretted saying and trying to say a bunch of other stuff to undo it but you can't really undo the things he said and so I feel like these are some of the most three-dimensional portraits I've ever been able to write on you know as long as I've been a journalist
0: and at the end of it your takeaway about that tension between idealism and cynicism is are you any more educated about that? I'm
1: definitely more educated. I think the j- beauty of the job is I'm getting more educated every time I write anything. Like, I, I come in not knowing anything, and I leave knowing a little bit about what makes every person tick. The main takeaway I have is that this is the ongoing fight of Washington. Trump has changed Washington in a lot of ways. Um, but one thing he has not changed is this central fight, which is, do people come here to do good, or do people come here to do good for themselves? And... Everyone in this book is somehow fighting that battle internally, externally, and I just think I have a better understanding of Washington having you know, profiled a few more characters, but it'll take a million more years to fully understand the place.
0: One of the themes that crops up in the book is there in the post-Trump era is a kind of absence of shame that used to apply to things that went on in Washington, which gives people either more latitude, more ability to succeed, or more ways to fail. Yeah, I mean, being shameless is a superpower in Washington.
1: Um, You know, it used to be you could be shamed out of office. You could be shamed into doing things the right way, you know, on on Twitter or or threads or whatever we're all on now. (laughs) People like to say, like, people in Washington are saying the quiet part out loud. It's become a cliche, but it's Mm -hmm. sort of true. It used to be you have to kind of pretend not to be quite as grifty or cynical or... Are shameless, And now people are just like,
0: here's the horrible thing I'm doing. The grift is baked into the cake. The and, cynicism is baked into the cake. It becomes part of your authentic presentation. Exactly. You're a truth teller. I mean, Donald Trump got credit for
1: being a truth teller, even though he lied more than any president ever, as far as I can tell. Um, but he was a truth teller because he was brash about it and it seemed and real. And unapologetic. And unapologetic. And look, there are legal implications to this. And you, he they did, and, and he's political too. He did not, he's not president right now. Nope. He's not Teflon Don, the way that people said. But he did get away with more for longer than anyone expected because he had this
0: personality. Ladies and gentlemen, stories are about people. We're going to get to those people on the other side of this break. Uh, I'm with Ben Terrace. His book is The Big Break. We are at Unconventional Diner. Lunch has arrived. We'll plow through that in due course. Stay tuned for segment two in just one second.
4: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you.
0: Welcome back to Takeout. Welcome back to Unconventional Diner. Ben Terrace of the Washington Post is our guest. And for those of you watching on CBS News Streaming or Paramount Plus, you have probably no doubt noticed Ben's fetching t-shirt. <laughs> Tops baseball 1984. Maybe that's the way he disarmingly gets people to open up and uh, let out all their inhibitions. Uh, who knows? Unconventional Diner, unconventional t-shirt. Exactly. You know. um, so let's start with some of the people that populate your book, which I highly recommend, folks. It's a fantastic read. And if you think about Washington as stuffy and full of button-down people and always hyper-conscious of their public presentation, that's not what this book is. This book is very real, very visceral. It gets into people's minds, their experiences, their mistakes, their ambitions, etc., Sean, how do you pronounce his last name? Uh, McKelwee. McKelwee. Or McElwee. McElwee. You know what? Hey, Either how way. do we know? Yeah, we know. Who, could say? Who is he? Uh, he? a great opens the, he's, a, he's the opener of the book. He is, He's yeah. a great opener. He's a grabber,
1: folks. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for saying that about the characters in the book. That, that's the goal, right? Is I never really wanted to be a political journalist, and so I always wanted to write about people, and I covered politics, but I want to cover the people. I want, I want this book to feel like a novel more than to feel like homework. And so that, that means a lot to hear you say that. Um, Sean is a fascinating character, for sure. He a um, rising star, young Democratic pollster, or ran a polling firm mm-hmm. called Data for Progress. Um, initially, I wanted to spend time with him because he felt like a character that could carry the weight of a bigger story, the story of what is a Democrat, who, you know, what, what does it mean to be successful in Washington as a Democrat, um, he was a Bernie bro type democratic socialist happy hour hosting dirtbag left guy for a while in Brooklyn or in Manhattan in, in, in New York. Uh, moved to Washington and had one of those very quick evolutions that you might see in Washington where he became a pragmatist type. He went from a guy who helped popularize the term abolish ICE to a guy who started saying things like stop saying to fund the police. We just need to you know incrementally move the ball forward get some wins as democrats got which, himself into some significant democratic circles This made him very mentioned p- by all the right people right. got to invite all the cool parties exactly. hosted some of the cool parties Exactly he became like it, it was a perfect fit for Biden's Washington The Biden White House loved him they would tweet out his polls they'd invite him to meetings he got a job working for the John Fetterman campaign which was as you know the biggest campaign in, in the midterm. so this guy was in 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 the in the mix um And so I'd spent time with him, and one of the places I spent a lot of time with him was at poker. He hosted a poker night for kind of Democratic operatives, you know, mid upper level Democratic operatives. And I already found him fascinating before I would go to poker. But at poker, I realized that what I had on my hands was a phenomenal Washington character. It, it, It turned out his biggest bets were not on poker, were not on cards. The biggest bets he made at At Poker Night, we're often on politics. He'd bet on elections. He'd bet on legislation. He would bet on whether a senator who had a stroke would be back in time for a vote by a certain date. He would bet on everything. Where would he do this? He would do it on the website called Predict It for a lot of them. He would make bets with people around the table, and he kept a long spreadsheet that, for reasons I never could quite figure out, he shared with me so I could see them happening in real time. Um... He was a pollster working on campaigns, and he would make bets on those campaigns. Sometimes he would make bets against his own clients on those campaigns. And I'm watching this realizing I'm getting a front row seat into the gamification of politics, the kind of cynical nature of today's politics. Like Donald Trump, he's a guy who kind of does scandalous things out in the open knowing that if he does it openly, people might not see it as a scandal because, oh, he's doing it openly. Like, how bad can it be? Right. And people got, let him get away with it. He made... He didn't make. He didn't make. He encouraged his staff to bet. He would give them
0: money to bet on politics. In reading the book, at t- there's a point where he says the betting is my way of judging your certitude or the quality of your either instincts or research. Yes. I asked, It was a confirmation mechanism in real time. At
1: one point, I sort of asked him, like, are you afraid of being like the Pete Rose of politics? Right, yeah. Like, your clients are going to say, I don't want to give money to a guy who's betting against us or, or maybe even betting at all. It's unseemly. Right. It's ethically dubious. Um, and he said, no, I sort of have the opposite approach, which is I think I'm better at my job because I gamble. You know, he was a degenerate gambler. He gambled on lots of stuff, not just politics. But the, he had a theory of the case, which was if I bet on a, an election and I lose, I will remember that loss. I will have a visceral connection to it, and I will force myself to get better. And if I win, hooray, I get some extra money, and I win. You know, he called it heuristics, and he would teach heuristics classes to his staff. Very on, on, fancy on word. It. Very fancy. He could be a fancy guy sometimes. Yeah. It's um, a triple
0: sat word, ladies yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, I, you know, I might have had to look it up in, in real time, but I that's definitely okay. <laughs> had to look it up. <laughs> and so he had a theory, and for a while it worked. He was doing well, and people let him get away with it. But as I write in the book, like, you can get away with a lot in Washington when you're winning.
0: As soon as you're losing, all of a sudden you kind of can't get away with anything. And he had a bunch of polls for the midterms mm-hmm. predicting, as many polls did, internally and externally, a very rough night on the midterms 2022 for Democrats didn't turn out to be that way. And suddenly those polls and his attitude about them and where he placed them and the visibility thereof became a huge knock against him. But there's another part of this story. Yeah, please there, tell there him. is. Well, even before the other part, it's like
1: before the election, he's showing me his his bets and he's betting against Democrats left and right. And he's confident about it. A lot of people were wrong, but not a lot of people are bragging about making bets against their own team. So that was a problem. But an equally big problem for him is that he was doing a lot of consulting work for the Bankman Freed's uh, Bankman Freed's Bankman Freed's Bankman Bankman Freed. Yeah. So Sam Bankman Freed as everybody knows, I'm sure, you know, crypto you probably former, heard about it. Folks. Former billionaire now, uh, you know, made a ton of money uh, on you know, his crypto exchange FTX and he was spending that money. Wildly, I mean, you couldn't throw a rock in Washington without hitting a place that was somehow getting funded by him either secretly or on the up and up or or whatever. And Sean was doing a lot of consulting for a group called Guarding Against Pandemics, which was run by Gabe Bankman-Fried, Sam's brother. And he was kind of getting into the Bankman-Fried orbit, which looked like a great bet. I mean, for a gambler, what could be a better bet than attaching yourself to a billionaire was only 30 years old who could spend money on democratic politics f- for 70 years sean is an early you know adapter of that and he makes a bunch of money um but the connection doesn't look so good when there's you know fraud involved and
0: federal indictments tend to harsh the mellow yes correct and so you, so now sean has two huge problems democratic internal backlash to his betting against the team and bad polling, or what was regarded as bad polling, plus his association with Sam Bakeman-Fried. Yeah. Does that tank him? Yes, it does. Um, you know, he had the staff, a young staff that
1: really looked up to him, and he did a lot of good for a lot of these people. Who they, they got into rooms that they never would have been in, meetings with Chuck Schumer, or meetings with the White House, polls that mattered. They were 25-year-old um, you know, nov- not novices exactly, but they were new to Washington, and all of a sudden they got to have big titles and big jobs,
0: and they owed a lot all to Sean. All because of Sean. All because of Sean. I mean, look, yeah.
1: they were smart, and they're, of course, but doors have to and be And that's open. how
0: influence builds, ladies right. and gentlemen. You have an idea, you do something, you get a team around you, that, that team succeeds, that team gets into places they've never been before, suddenly you're the team leader and you're a big deal. And there was almost a cult of Sean. Like, they, they liked him, they considered him... Best, fr- a best
1: friend, an older brother figure, someone to look up to, mm-hmm. and so it was really hard for there to be a big break at Data for Progress. But, but then with the a- wax wings near the sun began to melt. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and enough little breaks make for this big break, and they start looking into the work he's doing, and he's doing work for crypto that they're not happy about, and they start to feel very uncomfortable with the betting he's done, and the betting that they feel like they had to do, and... Ultimately, they push him out. And the guy who built this organization from scratch brought himself into the inner circle of American politics, has this dramatic rise and this dramatic fall, and I just happen to be around for all of it.
0: And all of it, ladies and gentlemen, miraculously to me, from a journalist's perspective, on the record. Yeah. I mean, you're scribbling, are you recording, are you doing stuff at these poker parties? You're having conversations that are as open... And honest as you would write if you were writing fiction, like I'm going to write this great line from this great character who's on this great ascent, and then my novel's going to twist, and I'm going to get the fall, and I'm going to be there for that, and I'm going to write the great quote from there. None of it's made up; it's all real; it's all sourced.
1: Yeah, and I think what the reason that that could happen was when I started spending time with Sean, he's on the rise, mm-hmm. and he feels he's like good. He, everything that he has done to get to that point is the kind of stuff he's saying in front of me, it's the way he acts, it's his larger-than-life personality, it's saying incredibly offensive things on the record, it's having his communications director roll her eyes, being like, he's always saying stuff like that in front of reporters, I can't get him to shut up, and Mm -hmm. it's kind of a, a laugh line, because it's all led to this rise. But when he starts falling, all of a sudden all of these things that lead to his rise also enable his downfall
0: and it doesn't look so good anymore doesn't look so good anymore that's one story there are many more and we'll get to them in segment three when we come back
2: Ah. the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana it doesn't get any better than this your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit
4: Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
0: Welcome back to The Takeout. Welcome back to Unconventional Diner. I'm telling you, if you're ever in D.C., take advantage of the chicken and waffles. I just crushed them in about seven and a half minutes, which uh, is kind of a land speed record for me. Uh, ben Terrace is our guest. The book, The Big Break, I've told you before, but I'll say it again. It's the subtitle that's the real hook. The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers, Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Who's to Marcus Purdy? Jamarcus is one of the most interesting characters
1: in this book to me for a number of reasons. One, because he kind of represents a part of Washington that usually does not get covered in a book Almost about Washington. never. Washington is always, books are always filled with the kind of people in front of the bright lights. And mm-hmm. he's someone who very much was not. He worked for Dianne Feinstein for five years, uh, young black congressional staffer from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, really smart guy, went to Harvard and Stanford and studied abroad in Oxford and worked for Feinstein for five years before getting fired, which I get into in the book, but we can, you can read the book for, for that whole backstory. Um, and after getting fired, he wants to have a protest of sorts. He wants to draw attention like a whistleblower to things that he's seen, including, he believes, the dimming mental you know faculties of, of his boss, which is something, Feinstein, Feinstein, yeah. something that's been this talked is about a lot. Before
0: that story and those questions broke into public view, ladies right. and gentlemen.
1: And so what he does is something unconventional. Um, He takes a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms. He breaks into his boss's office using his congressional ID that he still has. They just let him in. Way after hours, middle of the night. Middle of the night. Goes into her office, sits at her office, Senator Feinstein's desk, an adjacent office, not a cubicle. Her office. Sits at her actual desk. Puts on a camera, smokes a joint in front of the camera, phone camera. Yep, filming himself. Puts on music. And, what, and you said what a minute ago? He's smoking he's what? He's smoking a joint. Okay. This is, like, this is like, it's really watchable. Like You should check this out. You can Where find Where can it. you find it? Uh, the Dear White Staffers Instagram account, uh, which I can explain what that is. We will get to that. Uh, if you go to find Dear White Staffers and find the account, you'll find Jamarcus Purley sitting at a desk, smoking a joint, dancing to his mother's favorite song. And what he hoped was people would watch this video, it would go viral, and afterwards people would reach out to him and he could... Give interviews about what it's like to work on the Hill, what he's seen, what the problems are uh, in his office, and he can draw attention. He could be a witness
0: for something larger. I want to read from the book, if you'll let me. Please. Page 69 and 70. He, meaning Jamarcus, believed this gesture would work like a piece of protest art, grabbing people's attention on a visceral level and making them ask questions about what could lead a person to pull off such a stunt. Which he would then answer in detail. Kind of, if you're familiar with the show, and I most certainly am a Black Mirror moment. Yes, it is like a Black Mirror moment, yeah. something happened though.
1: Well, it didn't quite happen as he'd hoped. Um, Dear White is the anonymous Instagram account that has sort of taken the hill by storm, which is a guy working on Capitol Hill who takes uh, anonymous stories from other people on the hill to draw attention to, Working Ad conditions, bosses, Working bad conditions, bosses, all that sort of stuff. Low they, pay. Right. They post the video. Stresses, et cetera. They post the video, and it's the be- one of the best videos, most viewed videos that this account, which has a lot of viewers, has ever had, but it never gets picked up really by mainstream media. The Washington Post doesn't cover it. The New York Times. Even Politico doesn't really write a story about this. Because
0: as you write, people didn't know what to do with it.
1: He's didn't a, know what to make of it. He's a complicated guy. People feel strange about drugs and, and protests, and they don't really know what to do about it his story sort of just evaporates in a way. Um, It means a lot to a lot of people on the Hill who are like, I felt this way when I talked to the guy from Dear White Staffers. He said, it was relatable. We all kind of feel this way. Lots of people of color on the Hill who put in these long hours and work their asses off for bosses that don't always care, uh, who, uh, you know, will do laundry and walk dogs and get paid nothing and put in long hours and get blamed for every mess up but not get any credit for the work that they're supposed to be doing, it's relatable. And so I see this and I think Jamarcus is representative of a bigger story. I, I want to write about him and what he means and where he's from and how he got to this point, but I also want to kind of use the story to get into a, a world which another person mm-hmm. in these chapters calls the subaltern.
0: Right. I want to ask you about that. Let's say that word again. The subaltern, another
1: word I had to look up. I definitely had to Three times. So in, in writing about Jamarcus, One of the few people who covered it, it was a, uh, a reporter named Pablo Manriquez. Fascinating guy himself, not from a traditional outlet. He was working at a website called uh, Latino Rebels. And he told me his beat was the subaltern. And he said he liked to use that word because people had to look it up. And I had to look it up. <laughs> so props to Pablo for teaching me a word. Um, and what it means basically is the, the people who are removed from the hierarchies of power. And so he wants to cover the cafeteria workers in right. the Senate, the uh, the janitors, the, the people who are desperate for immigration reform, the staffers who work really hard and get paid nothing, the people who make Washington work. Or at least Capitol Hill work. Ca- Capitol Hill work, but also
0: parts of Washington. And lots of other agencies. Sure. And bureaucracies. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, the, the people who don't get the coverage but help make the place function. Function, right. Um,
0: and so... I and kinda, whose needs in terms of health care, wages, right. paid leave, or any of those things, sure. just simply, d- or or if there are ways that they're being abused right. or mistreated, don't get covered. Exactly. And so talking to Jamarcus and spending time with him
1: and talking to the Dear White Staffers guy, he's anonymous, but I was able to figure out who he was and spend some time with him, and Pablo and, and some chiefs of staff on the Hill, women of color who are chiefs of staff especially. Um, I, I just feel like I was able to see at least a slice of Washington that most people don't get to see, and then try to bring it to a, a larger audience.
0: And to that point, Ben, for those who are listening, say, look, I, I live in Colorado, I live in Texas, I live in Montana. What, what on earth does any of this have to do with me? I would say, well, and I'll get you to verify this or disagree with me on this. This seems to me to be part and parcel of underlying tensions that you can see across the U.S. economy right now, post-pandemic. People who are in jobs feeling empowered because of the stresses on the job, the need for those jobs to continue to exist even under the most difficult health-related circumstances, finding a voice, finding a way to organize, finding a way to communicate their grievances. It seems to me to be a universal American story right now. Yeah,
1: people talk about Washington like it's a bubble And in some ways it is, obviously. sure. But it is also a better reflection of the country than people, I think, are willing to admit. First of all, people
0: come from everywhere to be From everywhere in our country they come here. Every part of the country. Because they're idealists, because they want to do things, because they want to try. There are bubbles all... Bring their experiences, bring their perspectives. Right. And there are bubbles
1: all over the country, right? If you go to the middle of the country, that is a bubble. And and, And frankly, it has fewer people coming from everywhere else to kind of pierce that bubble. Right. And so I think if... If I can cover what's happening in Washington, it's not a perfect reflection of the rest of the country, but I do think people can read this and they can see themselves and they can see their communities and they can see their hopes and dreams and what they, you know, what they and their fears for that matter reflected
0: in in what's going on in the halls of Congress. I want to get one more character in before we go to break. So roughly two minutes or so, who is Leah Hunt Hendricks?
1: Another fascinating person. Uh, she, Hunt. Hunt. Remember that, ladies and gentlemen. Hunt. She is the granddaughter of H.L. Hunt, uh, who was believed to be the richest man in the world when he died, an oil tycoon from Texas, right-wing populist type who you know, loved Joseph McCarthy, and she is sort of his opposite. She was dubbed Occupy's heiress during Occupy Wall Street because she was a rich person that was in support of what they believed in and would spend time down at Occupy Wall Street. Now... She is a fun was she a
0: guilty granddaughter
1: of a oil tycoon? I'm sure there is some guilt there's some family guilt that's part of her story absolutely uh, trying to unwind kind of the project that, that he stood for. Uh, she now is a figure... Yeah, the fossil fuel economy, of course, everything of course. about that. She now owns a multi-million dollar house in Washington, D.C. and Georgetown, and, right? Uh, in Logan Circle. Logan actually. Circle, that's right, north N- of Georgetown. Not far I'd from say. here. Right. And she hosts fundraisers and salons and is a big kind of mover and shaker in very progressive politics. And so she is uh, one of the few very wealthy, independently wealthy people in that space, right? Mm-hmm. There's lots of money in progressive politics, but few millionaires and heiresses to oil fortunes that can, like, just single-handedly help move money into those places.
0: Yeah, and if you need to find money or a place to uh, stay for a night or two in D.C., if you're a a rising political candidate, which we'll get to that name in a minute, you can hang out there. Sure. That that happens uh, with relative frequency. (laughs) No strings attached. And uh, she's generous about that. And... uh, doesn't it seems to me ask for anything in particular in return
1: no she doesn't need much i mean right. she i'm sure she would like to have power and influence right. and be and, and be somebody who's thought of as helping the cause right somebody but that power
0: you, can be derived simply from associative power and Leah sure. works in that world yeah. uh, ben Terrace is our guest big break is the book segment four coming your way from unconventional diner
3: in just one second
0: Welcome back to The Takeout. Ben Terrace, Washington Post, is our guest. We were talking about Leah Hunt Hendricks. Again, if I can, I want to read from page 234 of Ben's book, The Big Break. Talking to Leah about money could be a bit strained. Being an oil heiress and political radical came with some inevitable contradictions. It's one of the many beautiful, subtle, hilarious And incisive lines in the book. Lots of contradictions. Yeah. And she lived out that life. Tell our listeners and viewers about the trajectory. Did she fall or is she still here? What's going on? So she's still here-ish.
1: I mean, she... Look, the the thing that I think is great about this book that made it so rewarding for me is it's not just about the political trajectories, but also, like, people's lives. I got brought into people's actual lives. Mm -hmm. And she was someone who was in addition to trying to find her place in Washington was also someone trying to find somebody to marry and to start a family with and um, the last I talked to her she was spending time away from Washington to be in New York more to be with uh, a man that she spent time with in this book and there's some contradictions in that relationship as well Um, but I don't think she's going to go anywhere anytime soon When, when you have access to capital you can Be powerful in Washington. Right. A lot of people have to struggle very hard to at least look like they have the ability to make money happen for other people. People can look at her and say, all right, well, there's an opportunity here. And so she tries to use that to move the party to the left and try to get candidates that she cares about to win primaries. And people will at least listen to her and sometimes believe in what she believes in. People like Maxwell Frost. Like Maxwell Frost, yeah. He, um... Currently, the very youngest member of the House of Representatives from That's Florida. Right. Um, one of the kind of big key scenes I have in this book is a fundraiser that brings her together with people that she was often in conflict with, including Gabe Bankman-Fried and, and Sean. Uh, these people all kind of fight amongst each other about the direction of the party,
0: which candidates to endorse, which ones not to, right? How progressive to be? What who's to talk a true about? Progressive, whether who's crypto? A rather crypto rating as a progressive right. or the way around?
1: Exactly. And um, Maxwell Frost, you know, thanks her as being one of the kind of earliest supporters of his campaign. And he's an impressive guy. I don't know what will happen with him like one way or the other, but he's a member of Congress. He's, you know, 20 something years old. And, you know, when I saw him speak, there were people in the back of the room saying this guy's going to be president someday. And. People like Leah like to have connections to people who could be president someday.
0: It, you know, it helps with their own cause. Trust me, folks, that's said in the back room of a lot of places in Washington. It's almost never true, but it occasionally is true. So you never want to rule it out entirely. Uh, talk to me about whether or not George Santos and his story flows through any part of your observations or the characters sure. in this book.
1: Weirdly, George Santos does appear in this book at some at an event that I'm at. He's just there. Um, He's not a main character in the book, but his presence is sort of, you know, emblematic of of a lot of what I'm writing about, especially in a story involving um, Matt and Mercedes Schlapp, two Trump loyalists who um, are welcoming kind of the MAGA movement into their home a lot, into their conference that they host, CPAC, a very big deal um, political conference that happens like 100 times a year now. Yes. Um, And George Santos being at their house for a party... And all these people that are kind of George Santos-esque being on the main stage uh, at CPAC or uh, being the kind of leaders of the party, to me is sort of like, okay, well, this, is, this matters because um, you couldn't get away with this sort of stuff the way you can now. This shamelessness that George Santos represents, he's still in Congress somehow. Right. Uh, under indictment, un- still in, but still he's, in but Congress. Uh, a lot of people would have left while being under indictment
0: right. in years past. Um, Or
1: having had all of the
0: serialized fabrications revealed about them. Not just one more
1: and more and more. And so one key story I have here is between Matt who you know runs this organization a big deal in Republican politics and his right hand man man named Ian Walters who eventually couldn't deal with all the George Santos esque people around and so I, I really try very hard to show the how the and schemers right the drifters yeah grifters and schemers and all, all of them I, I really want to show how politics can affect people personally this is people lose mm. friendships people lose father figures and, and older brother figures and confidants mentors, mentors because of politics. It's not just policy papers and beliefs. Sometimes it's
0: how people actually live and survive and and, you know make their groups of friends. Right. And one of the choices, ladies and gentlemen, that Washington presents to people, young people in particular, is do you attach yourself in order to rise to one person or one particular cause? And if you do, how much of yourself is wrapped up in that person or that cause, so much so that you begin to disappear And all you're known as is associated with that person or that cause. It can grind you up. Yeah. It's one of the real choices that people face here, and it's hard to
1: get the proper answer. There is sort of a gambling theme that runs through this Mm -hmm. book. I mean, obviously, we talk about the poker and the actual gambling on politics, but there is a gambling theme of... Do I go? Sean all is in? right.
0: People are making bets on themselves sure. and their trajectories all the time. And on he's other just
1: more—he was just more obvious about and it. other people. I mean, mm-hmm. Matt Schlapp was a George W. Bush political director, passionate conservative type mm-hmm. establishment. He looks like—I think I read in the book that like if there was a mascot for a team called the Washington Lobbyists, it would just look like him. Mm-hmm. He looks like your idea of Washington. And he decides to go all in on Trump, even before a lot of other people did. When the Access Hollywood tape broke, he and his wife went out to their farmhouse in Virginia. They have five daughters, and they had to decide, do we want to continue supporting him vocally or not? And they decided, yeah, it will be better for the country and, frankly, better for them if they do. And when he won, they get rewarded with that. They live in the largest house on Mansion Drive. His wife went to work for the Trump White House. Yeah, and he was raking in money as a lobbyist. Like, he placed the bet. And it paid off. But sometimes the same bet, if you make the same bet over and over again, like you might go bust, right? And so, yes, how much do you want to tie yourself to somebody like Donald how Trump? How much
0: do you want to tie yourself? And how much of your own set of principles are you willing to launder or compromise on behalf of that bet?
1: Yeah. And, Matt and,
0: Schlapp's not the only one who has to answer that question. No, he's not.
1: But he's definitely one of the people who has to answer it the most. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he really, he really fully changed kind of his, his place in Washington as a guy who was thought of as the nice guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he, was, he would say, and other people would say about him, like, oh, he's the nice Republican, you know? Like, right. the one that Democrats can, you know, get you along and with, with. And, and if you work at the Motion Picture Association, like, he's the Republican you'll bring in to help mm-hmm. you get a sense of, you know, where conservatives the are on issues. perspective. Right, exactly. And now, you know, he's gone from that guy, and he says, I don't play that game anymore. Now I'm the fight, fight, fight guy. It's just always fighting all the time. Yes, he's a shapeshifter. And the shape that he's taken on now is like one of... With pugilism all the time and it's it's, uh, it's a big change. And he's comfortable with it by and large as he comes across in the book. He acts comfortable. I do think he's got a lot of stuff going on behind mm-hmm. the well, scenes. I, hey, look, <laughs> and,
0: it, and not only behind the scenes, but just Google the name if you haven't already. There's a civil case pending. Yeah, I mean, it's in the book too. Very...
1: The thing, and we should mention it. Proportions. it, you know,
0: it's, it's in the book. He- we'll mention that in the Takeout sure. Outtake especial because yeah. we have to go. Fair enough. Ben Terrace has been our special guest. Unconventional Diner, I'm happy to say, has been our host. Lunch was fantastic. The book, again, the big break. The gamblers, party animals, and true believers trying to win in Washington while America loses its mind. Don't lose your mind or your place. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake especial.
4: Welcome to Fail Better.
0: Welcome to your takeout, Outtake Especial. Thanks for hanging out with us. Ben Terrace of Washington Post is our guest. Uh, we will continue the conversation. We had to abruptly end because we're ending the show. Matt Schlapp. Yeah, Matt Schlapp. I mean,
1: look, I was spending time... American Conservative with, Union. Top guy. I was spending time with him because he felt in a, like an important figure in Republican politics. Mm-hmm. If I could understand how he went from... You know George W. Bush Republican to Trump sycophants, basically, I might have a better understanding of Republicans in this general. Just transition. How, how did the whole party kind of go from one place to another? Um, but in reporting on him, like there's a lot more complicated stuff going on than just that. Uh, he was accused um, at the end of the year, as I was finishing up my reporting... End of 2022. End of 2022. Um, Reporting came out that earlier in the year and right before the midterms, he was down in Georgia and allegedly groped a male staffer. Um, the male staffer has sued and it is being uh, figured out in the legal system right now. But it has certainly changed Matt's kind of place in the world. Right. And as I mentioned, one of his main things that he did uh, to become a Trump loyalist was to support Trump after Access Hollywood, mm-hmm. after his own groping allegations. By the end of the year, people, you know, he's off of Fox News, he's sort of being excommunicated from certain parts of the party, but he does go down to Mar-a-Lago for one of his first events and standing beside him, introducing him at one of the first events shortly after this breaks is Donald Trump. And so you can see how there's, first of all, like a nice kind of...
0: That transactional fusing
1: of loyalty. Exactly. And and loyalty and Donald Trump and this is why people act the way they do sometimes is because they
0: can you know, make sure that they're part of something. Indeed. Uh, As you know, Ben, we have three questions. We ask everyone who comes to the takeout microphones. So take these questions in whichever order you prefer. Mm. Most influential book in your life and why all time favorite movie. And uh, you're about to get on a plane or take a very long drive. And there's some music that you're really going to get into. What music artist or genre is that most likely to be? Yeah. Well, first of all, the the music is easy. If I'm taking a long drive, I'm listening to the last waltz, I'm going to listen to the band, am just going to... So, Ben and I have known each other since 2010, when we were together at National Journal, and we, among many things we discovered about ourselves, almost instantly, was our love for the band, The Last Waltz, and most particularly, Levon Helm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I could, even if I didn't have The Last Waltz, I could just listen to the Levon records. Yes. I'd be fine. Uh, So, that's an easy one. Um... Most influential book? I mean, honestly, uh, professionally, it would probably be Mark Leibovich's This Town. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really know what it meant to cover politics from a kind of fun, featurey perspective until I saw that Anthropological point of view, yeah. To, to look at people. What's like? the anthropology of D.C. To take a place seriously while not being overly serious. If right. that makes sense. Like yeah. you can. It's like Veep. It's like you watch Veep. And you laugh, but you also understand the place. And you're also like, man, this is twisted. It's a little mm-hmm. too close to home. Right. Reading This Town, for me, was like that. Right. And so, for sure, I have the job that Mark used to have at the Washington Post. My path is not dissimilar because of that. Uh, favorite movie? I mean, Mark Leibovitch, by the way, is a prominent blurber of
0: The Big Break
1: on the cover. Contractually, I have to say that his book was influential to me because of the blurb. So <laughs> take, take, take my endorsement. Another way with a works, ladies <laughs> yeah, and gentlemen. Yeah,
0: exactly. We're
1: very transparent here at the takeout, if nothing else. I'd say my favorite movie is Cool Hand Luke. Mm-hmm. I just think it's great. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't what think I What we can have eat- here uh-huh, is failure, is failure to, communicate.
0: to communicate. Exactly. And why you got to say 50 eggs? <laughs> <laughs> It's a great, great movie, Um, in part because there's a, I don't want to say a parallelism, but the story of Cool Hand Luke is someone who rebels, but then is, you're left to fairly conclude at the end broken Mm -hmm. by his rebellious spirit and complies. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not exactly the tale of some of your characters in this story, but it's not far. I never really thought about that, but there is something similar,
1: which is like, He's so used to kind of being inside the walls of this place that he almost can't exist outside Mm -hmm. of it. And there's a lot of people here who desperately want to break free but don't know where to go and don't have a world outside of Washington. And they are so used to the walls of Washington. The conformity of Washington. That when given the opportunity... The
0: strictures. They can't help but come back. Mm -hmm. That's true. Cool hand, Luke, and the big break. We have discovered a linkage, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. Among the many things we try to accomplish here at the Takeout... We have some fun. we bring on great people like Ben Terrace. And when we can, we find linkages. Ben, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for hanging out. Again, the book, The Big Break. The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. We don't ever do that here, though we toy with it. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings,
3: early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.